This is Quarantine Conversations. Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerbach. Is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to... Mitch Darcy. Today we're focusing on pride in earth sciences and speaking to members of our community who also belong to the LGBTQ rainbow. Our interviewee today is Mitch Darcy, a sedimentologist, right? Uh, yeah, geomorphologist, sedimentologist, a bit of a climate scientist, so I'm kind of a bit of everything. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, now, Mitch, uh, in our series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific studies. Uh, so would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, or a researcher? Or, or, um... So I just started as an assistant professor. I guess of those, I would think of myself as a researcher because most of the time I've done research so far. But I'm beginning to teach a bit more. Okay, excellent. Now, how would you describe a sedimentologist or... or how would you describe what you are? <laughs> so I normally I say I'm a geomorphologist, which is somebody who studies the surface of the earth, surface landscapes, all of the processes that shape the surface of the earth, whether that's erosion, sediment transport, landsliding, the deposition of sediments, and then all of the structures and landforms which are left behind. So rivers, floodplains, glaciers, um, deserts with dunes in them, coastal cliffs. So they're all the things that I look at, and that is a geomorphologist's job. But I also look at the sediments which are left behind by surface processes, so a bit of sedimentology. And I'm really interested in how the surface of the earth is shaped by climate. So I'm also sometimes learning about climate science and paleoclimate. Um, but everything I do is really aimed at understanding how the surface of Earth's landscapes are shaped and have changed through time. Oh, interesting. So it sounds like you specialize in erosion, right? Yeah, er erosion. So erosion is the start of a sediment cascade. It's when the sediment is produced by processes like weathering and the breakdown of rock or landslides or debris flows. But then I'm also interested in where that sediment goes, how it moves, and how it's deposited in a final bit of basin stratigraphy or sedimentary sequence. So the whole source to sink system is what I'm interested in. Interesting, interesting. Uh, now, how do you get into this field? It doesn't, it's not really something that um, we teach kids about in elementary school. No, it, yeah. So originally when I got into earth science, it was kind of an accident. I mean, at school, as you say, I'm from the UK and in the UK we do chemistry, physics, biology, geography. And I knew I enjoyed all of those, but I didn't really know that earth science was a thing. So when I was applying for university courses, I actually applied for medicine at the beginning because I thought I like you know, biology and chemistry and want to be a scientist. And then when I found earth science, I just saw it in brochures for the universities and thought, well, this lets me continue doing everything. I can keep doing geography, chemistry, physics, learn about ecology, biology. So I just picked it because I wanted to keep doing everything and not narrow down too much. So getting into earth science in general was kind of by accident. I didn't have a long-term plan. And when I was a kid, I didn't want to grow up and be a geologist. 
But then since I started in earth science, I've really narrowed down on surface processes and climate because that's what I found most interesting. Um, I think understanding the impacts of climate change on surface processes is a really useful topic. Um, and it allows me to look back in time to study modern processes. And again, it touches on so many different fields. So I get to do field work, I get to do chemistry, I can do some modeling sometimes, I can go into the lab. I really just like doing lots of different things and geomorphology lets you think in a really intricate way. That's something that I've been hearing a lot with these interviews is um, the scientists in this field uh, really enjoy being able to uh, dip their fingers into many different pies, um, physics mm. and uh, chemistry and, and, and all those fields that you were talking about. <laughs> I think that's a really common feature actually among earth scientists because our field is so interdisciplinary um, that we really have to be physicists and chemists and field geologists and understand so many different areas, in my case, geography as well. Um, that's part of the fun, but it's also part of the challenge. It keeps you on your toes, keeps you learning. Hmm. Um, in your field work or in your studies, have you made any discoveries that you'd like to share? Um, a lot of my work has, so a big theme in my work has been looking at alluvial fans. I don't know if your listeners will know what, what an alluvial fan is, but in case they don't, uh, they're big cones of sediment that you commonly find in deserts. So if anyone's been on holiday to places like Death Valley, along the edges of all these mountain ranges, you have rivers and canyons that are transporting sediment. And then when they reach this big open flat basin, their slopes slow down and they just deposit all of their sediment in a big cone. You often get this sort of apron of sediment that's left behind on the edge of mountain ranges. And I'm really interested in these. I've been looking at these for years because they're simple landscapes. All the sediment that comes out of this short river system from an eroding mountain range is just kind of dropped next to it. So we can reconstruct all of the material that's come out, how quickly we can volumetrically close the system. So I think they're a really good place to start. And if we can't make sense of these really simple, small landscapes, I think we'll have a hard time moving on to bigger, more complicated landscapes. So a lot of my work has focused on those. And a common thing that I keep finding is that they've really resonated with orbital cycles. So the orbit of the Earth is constantly changing with different periodicities over time. That impacts climate, and in turn, it impacts the erosion and deposition of sediment. So when I look at these alluvial fans, I found lots of examples where there are orbital cycles, signals of that preserved in the sedimentary deposits. So I guess that's you know, the main thing that I've been discovering in my work so far. Um, but it's not something that I've done from scratch. Right? Like everything we discover is, is built on the work of previous people who have looked at these systems as well. So I wouldn't say it's, it's my own sole discovery. Well, you're, you're keeping it going. Um, just to clarify, so like alluvial fans, um, would those be like dried up deltas? Uh, they're a bit like deltas, so they look like deltas. A delta will be at the end of a large river system um, where it's entering something like a lake or the ocean. Um, but there are some differences. So a delta can avulse, which means it can move around, and the apex can suddenly shift position. Mm. They're not very constrained um, in their place, which means if you have towns built on a delta, you can have a river that's going in one place for say, a century, and then it can suddenly move, and it's a big hazard. An alluvial fan is more 
constraint because it's formed at the exit of a large canyon that doesn't really move over time. So the apex of the system is fixed. Um, so they tend to be a little bit simpler and more fixed in space than a delta, but there are many similarities and superficially they look very similar. Could you do your, your um, studies with deltas as well, like with our own um, delta BC? <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe. I haven't branched out into that so far. A lot of the time I tend to work in dry landscapes, um, like deserts, mm -hmm. where alluvial fans are really well exposed um, because you can see all the sediments, you don't have to dig through soil and material like that. Deltas are often wetter and more vegetated, so it might be harder to find the sediments. But in principle, yeah, they could preserve really interesting signals of climate change and surface processes as well. And when you're talking about uh, these orbital cycles, are you talking over um, what kind of time scale? Like years, decades, millennia? Oh, much longer, many, many millennia. So there, there are different patterns in Earth's orbit which change over different time scales. Um, but common orbital time scales are like 20,000 years, 40,000 years, 100,000 years. So we're talking about going back to the last ice age, for example, um, these kind of time scales of climate change. Uh, there are shorter climate changes which also affect surface processes. A recent example is the Younger Dryas. In case people haven't heard of the Younger Dryas, um, it was when the planet was coming out of the last ice age and lots of the ice caps on the northern hemisphere were melting and all that cold water got poured into the North Atlantic and it disrupted ocean circulation and caused lots of dramatic climate changes for about a thousand years that happened twelve and a half thousand years ago um, and we see signals of that all over the world um, recorded in sedimentary deposits so the shortest time scale is about a thousand years um, but the longest is 100,000 year ice age cycles. Well, that's a really interesting cross-section of different scientific fields. You've got your uh, geology mixed in with your planetary uh, sciences and uh, yeah. <laughs> not the center of any Venn diagram that I would have imagined. Yeah, exactly. There's so many different things. Um, and the more you keep learning about it, this is the fun part about earth sciences really, is that you get such a broad and deep education. Um, maybe it's true in other fields and, you know, I think of, you know, chemistry, for example, just being chemistry. I'm sure there's lots of diversity in chemistry as well, but something I really enjoy about earth sciences is diversity and how interdisciplinary the work is. <laughs> now, um, do you get onto the field very often? Normally I do. Um, at the moment, that has all kind of been torpedoed by the COVID pandemic. Um, but normally I do field work several times a year. Um, and the main field areas I go to are Western North America, like California um, and the Andes in Argentina. So the southern part of the central Andes. But I've also done field work in Italy, uh, islands in Greece, so around the Mediterranean, uh, Scotland. Yeah, I love field work. Normally I do a lot of it, but at the moment I'm having to adapt to the pandemic. Right, right. Uh, one common theme that we often hear from our um, Earth, Earth, Ocean, Atmospheric scientists is that uh, some really crazy things can happen out in the field. Um, has anything bizarre ever happened to you in the field? Um, I don't, I mean, we've had certainly interesting experience. I don't know if anything bizarre has happened, but... Um, 
we've done some quite adventurous, probably the most adventurous trip I've done was to get some sediments from uh, sediment samples from former glaciers in Argentina. So there's a mountain range called the Sierra de Aconquija in the north of Argentina, which today is a desert. It's very dry. Um, there's sand dunes being blown around. There's cactus plants. Um, you know, it's what you might think of as the north of Argentina. But there are clues in the landscape that the climate used to be really different. So there are sediments from a large lake that used to exist there and from glaciers that used to exist on top of the mountain range. So at some point in the past, it probably looked like New Zealand today. Um, and now it's turned into a desert. And I wanted to find out when that happened and why and understand why the climate there changed so dramatically. And to do that, I wanted to date these bits of sediment left behind by glaciers on the top of the mountain range, which obviously means climbing the mountain range to a, about 5,000 meters um, from an elevation of about 2,400 meters. So it was a lot of elevation change um, and quite high. We went up on donkeys um, because it's far too steep and difficult to walk up there, especially if you're carrying rock samples. And that I found really difficult actually, because you have to keep kicking the donkeys. Um, I haven't really been on donkeys much before, but to make them go, you have to kick them in the side. So it felt like animal cruelty, but apparently this is what you're supposed to do. So I just sort of kicked this donkey up a mountain range in the Andes to the top and then kicked it all the way back down again. <laughs> um, but that, that was, pretty tough like it's really tiring to ride a donkey mm -hmm. I was there with my field partner who was actually a student from my former university in Germany so I was really the person of responsibility with it and it got a bit hairy at times we had a failed attempt getting up the mountain range where it's just too steep um, another thing I learned about donkeys is they throw you off of them when they're falling down Oh. So there were, we were going up some scree slopes where it was really steep and the donkeys were, were falling over themselves. Um, but they don't want to fall over and land on you. So they kick you off. They throw you off and you sort of fly away from them and then they fall over. But the donkey is trying to protect you by not landing on you and crushing you. Um, I did not know this, but they're, they're very considerate animals. Um, and yeah, we climbed up this mountain range on the donkeys, got our samples. I had massive elevation sickness, altitude sickness. Um, I was very dizzy and just felt horrible. So it was quite hard hammering the samples and then camping overnight at the top of the mountain range and coming back down again. So fieldwork is fun, but it, it can also be really challenging if you have to go to remote places and figure these things out. So you're adding uh, animal husbandry to the uh, planetary yeah. science <laughs> and geology. Yeah. And this is, I find it fun how the way that we go out into the field hasn't changed so much. We, we have a lot of modern technology, like, you know, I can take drones and expensive pieces of kit into the field and fly them around. But if you want to get to the top of the mountain range, you still have to get on the back of a donkey and find a route up to the top of the mountain range. You still have to be able to camp there. Um, so a lot of it is still, hasn't really changed. I mean, 100 years ago, the first geologists were going around on donkeys. Yeah, it's amazing how what you're describing does really sound like um, that romantic image of what we have in our, our heads of uh, exploring mountains and the, yeah, the, the geology of mountains. Yeah, and it can be really fun, but at the same time, it can be, it can be intimidating for people, actually. 
I mean, I'm a city person. I, I grew up in London in the UK. I did not grow up going up mountains or camping or going to lakes or anything like that. So I remember learning all of this and going on my first field trips and feeling actually quite out of my comfort zone. Like I didn't know what to bring or how to go camping or how to figure any of these things out. So it makes for great photos and stories, but I think we also have to be aware that not everybody knows how to go out into the wilderness and do field work like this, and that it can actually be a bit intimidating for people to do it the first time. Although it seems like it ties into um, how you do your research as well. You're constantly uh, getting out of your comfort zone and going into different fields. Um, and just like you were saying, you were born in a, in a very urban environment um, and then you have to get out of your comfort zone and go off into, um, into the field, <laughs> mm. a very different environment. Yeah, that's true. When I look back, I think it wasn't just me that chose to leave my comfort zone. I look back and I'm really grateful to good field geology teachers that I had when I was an undergraduate, for example, who led great field trips and taught us how to do these things. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I was led into that field and given the training to do it properly. Um, and if I wasn't taken on really good field trips with um, very supportive staff who were very constructive and took time to think about, you know, that people didn't know necessarily all of these field skills. Perhaps I wouldn't have gone down this route. Perhaps I would have gone down a different path that didn't require field work. Well, I'm sure all our faculty are, who are um, struggling to develop uh, new field trips for COVID are very um, excited to hear that field trips are worth it and they do have a long-term impact in um, helping to yeah, help they the are. next generation of faculty. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I, I think fieldwork is important for lots of different reasons. I mean, there, there isn't a substitute for going out and looking at the earth and collecting real data, looking at real rocks, if you want to learn about those, those types of deposits. Um, but it's also just a really integrative way of thinking. This is the theme we keep coming back to. But when you're in the field, it's an opportunity to bring together all of your different classes and courses and topics to try and figure out what's going on. And I know people learn in different ways. Some people absorb information really well by sitting in a lecture theatre or going to the library and reading a book. Um, but other people really learn by getting hands-on with the rock and going out and seeing different landscapes and deposits and topography and landforms. Um, and I'm definitely that type of person. Like I, I've always learned and figured things out by going out into the field and doing things hands-on. Hands -on. Um, so I think for some people, it's a really important learning experience as well. It's a different way of learning. Wonderful. Uh, now, what you are researching sounds very interesting. Um, does it have real-world applications? Or, or um, can you explain why it's important to us? I think, uh, yeah, I think it does. I mean, I research different things. Um, the big flavor is how climate change impacts surface processes. Um, so, that I think is relevant because the climate is changing. We live in a time of changing climate and it's important to know what effect that will have over the next 50 years, 100 years, 200 years. You know, if, if a location is going to experience more flooding, more erosion of sediment or deposition of sediment, loss of soils, um, greater hazards due to landsliding, debris flows or deltas, evolving like we were talking about earlier. It's important to understand how those processes work so we can predict what might change. Um, so that's one obvious applied outcome of what I do. But I think often we don't know why knowledge will be useful. 
And I think it's really valuable that we still just do fundamental research to understand how the Earth works. Um, for example, part of my research is trying to recover climate signals from surface processes and sediments. And you might think, well, does it really matter what happened to the climate 20,000 years ago? It's not, that's not now. It doesn't affect anybody now. Um, but by understanding that, we can say, improve climate models and understand climate dynamics better, which then feeds into our future predictions. So a lot of the time, I think fundamental research is valuable, even if there isn't a clear applied benefit. But I suppose the, the applied benefit, what I'm doing is understanding the impacts of climate change that are likely to happen. Absolutely. It's hard enough for us to, to study the climate right now because um, we only really started studying cl the planetary climate after we started affecting it so uh, dramatically. So um, yes. understanding what it was like before humans were around is a great way of establishing a, an alternative baseline. Exactly. And also the range of historical records is actually quite small in terms of changes in the climate system. You know, maybe in some places we have records of climate going back 100 years, 200 years. Um, but the range of change, even up to the present day, is very small. If you go back to the last ice age, temperatures globally were five or six degrees colder on average, which is much bigger than anything we've seen throughout human history. So by comparing with ancient climate states, we can also test climate models with a greater range of conditions and bigger perturbations and disturbances, which is really important. Um, historical records are detailed, but quite limited in their range. Now, what would you say is your uh, favorite and most exciting part of your job? Um, I wouldn't say there is one, actually. The, my, well, my favorite part of the job is the variety. Um, so sometimes I'm doing field work, other times I'm going to conferences and meeting people, um, presenting my work, getting new ideas, other times I'm writing funding proposals, which I really enjoy, you know, thinking about the work that I want to do in the future. Um, so I like the variety of being a scientist. You, you never have two days that are the same. Sometimes I'm going in the lab and doing chemistry, other times I'm looking at satellite data. Um, it's a very stimulating job because there's so much variation and that's my favourite thing. Not not one of those individual activities, but the, the diversity. Well, it's great you have an open mind and are able to embrace change. Um, since we're on the topic, um, our listeners might not be aware, but when did you start with UBC again? March, March this year. So I've, I've been around for about three months. And you started uh, March 1st and then all of UBC got shut down when? I think it was the 15th of March. It was about, I don't know if it was the 15th exactly, but it was the middle of March that we all went into the home office. So I moved, I was living in Germany before and I moved to Canada on the 24th of February. Um, so I was here for a week to find somewhere to live. Then I started on the 1st of March and then we all went to working from home in the middle of March. So, I mean, you're talking about being someone who likes to roll with the punches. You really had a big one thrown at you. Um, and it seems like you really rolled with it successfully. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so. I think so. It, there have been pros and cons. I mean, it's been hard to work at home just from the isolation. It's, it's made me realize that I engage with people by having coffee meetings all the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. every, every person I want to meet with, I keep wanting to say, let's go for a coffee. Let's meet over a coffee. So I think that's how I operate. Um, and I found it quite hard, yeah, trying to do so much by email without being able to see any you know, interact with people in person. 
it's obviously been hard not being able to set up a lab and find my way around the department and necessarily meet people in the same way. But then the the flip side is that it's given me more time to get established at home because when you move, you have to order and buy lots of furniture and sort lots of things out. So um, it's perhaps given me the time and space to get those things sorted so that when we go back, I, I'll be able to go full speed and work. Well, that's a great way, great way to put a positive spin on it. Um, <laughs> have you been able to do much from home? Yeah, quite a lot. I mean, at first I had a bit of a productivity dip, which I think everyone did just because it's so unpredictable and you have to adapt to change. And having just come out of a move as well, um, you know, I had a lot of stuff in boxes and you know, I was thinking, what do I need? What do I need to buy? Where am I? <laughs> Um, you know, I didn't know local coffee shops or anything like that. Um, so it, it was a bit of chaos right at the beginning, but I feel like I adjusted to it quite quickly. Um, I mean, I'm lucky that, you know, I have a secure position and can pay my rent. It's been a lot harder for other people in Vancouver and everywhere else in the world who've lost their jobs and had a much harder time. Um, but yeah, I've settled into doing work. It's given me time to think about what I want to do in the future. Um, working on recruiting students to start in my group, um, finishing up papers, I'm doing some editorial work for a journal that I, I work for, things are moving forward. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, now today's podcast is all about celebrating um, uh, queer people in earth, ocean and atmospheric sciences, um, but we also realize that this isn't always the case. Uh, in general, have you found this field to be welcoming or hostile? And has there ever been an occasion where uh, your orientation has affected your studies or your work? So I'm happy to say, so I'm gay, I'm a gay man. Um, and I've been openly gay like out since I was 18. So all throughout my undergraduate studies and ever after. Um, and I've never had any problems with it, actually. I found earth science to be super welcoming almost to the point where it's a non-issue like i talk about relationships and everything like that especially when you do field work you end up spending so much time in the field with people you talk about relationships and breakups and all these personal things and i actually can't think of a single bad experience where someone has been not welcoming or homophobic um so i really feel like it's not been an issue at all it's just part of my character and life and it's always been accepted. Perhaps I've been lucky in that I grew up in London. I did my undergraduate studies through to my PhD in London as well and London's a very diverse city. Um, so I think there it's not an issue anyway. Um, but yeah, I can honestly say that you know, it's been a very welcoming field and I've had no problems at all. Wonderful. And I'm glad, especially that you've never had any issues in the field because I've heard that that's where some of those issues can sometimes creep up. Yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't at all. But I think, I think when you think about it, in London's such a diverse city that, yeah, all of our students and staff living there, you know, see lots of gay people. There's a lot of gay community and other things happening in London. And I think this is where visibility and diversity are key. When you're in a place where you have lots of diversity, lots of different types of people living together, people aren't upset by it. They just accept it and it's just there. Um, so I think that's why visibility is important. And you know, for someone like me to be openly gay, if, if I can be, then I think it really helps to, to encourage other people to accept it and see that you know, we're all just the same. 
I think that's a great attitude and I'm sure your future students will uh, be very appreciative as well. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I think the more diversity we have, the better. Um, but I really just see it as, yeah, part of my character, but something that has just been widely accepted, really. It's never, it hasn't been something that I think has given me any disadvantage or advantage. Excellent. Yeah, it's hopefully going to be a non-issue going forward as well. Yeah, but I appreciate that, you know, I, I've got to this lucky position because other people have gone through a tougher time of being visible when you know, the world was more of a homophobic and hostile place. Um, so I think it's important not to take it for granted and to understand that you know, there has been a long process of getting that equality of opportunities. Um, but I have had no problems at all, which I'm very happy to report. Excellent. Uh, so that's all the questions that I have. Did you want to say anything before I let you go? No, I don't think so. I've really enjoyed it. It's been fun talking. Absolutely, me too. So thanks again, Mitch, and I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. Yeah, thank you. Same to you, Daniel. Thanks for doing Thank you. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash quarantine conversations.